You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Woody Allen said, when we lose 20 pounds, we may be losing the best 20 pounds we have. We may be losing the pounds that contain our genius, our humanity, our love, and honesty. That may be true, but if we followed the advice of Cicero, one should eat to live, not live to eat. That wouldn't be a problem. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Meg Zeller. Dr. Zeller is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. She's in the Division of Behavioral Medicine and Clinical Psychology at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Today we are discussing the psychological aspects of bariatric surgery in children. Dr. Zeller, I would like to thank you for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. An interesting choice of work. Amazing, after all these years that obesity has been known to be a problem in children, we've come to the point of surgical options. How does the process start? Who sends the child for bariatric surgery, and what is the evaluation process that you go through? The typical referral pattern is from a physician, so it would be a family physician or more likely some type of specialist. So this teenager has significant issues with sleep apnea, or type 2 diabetes, so their endocrinologist is referring. Oftentimes, we get referrals from orthopedic surgeons who, because of joint deterioration, want to be able to do surgery but aren't willing to do the surgery until the adolescent has lost significant weight. So it's typically not a cosmetic referral, even though the adolescent, when you sit and speak with them, cosmetic reasons are clearly a part of it, but that isn't at least for adolescent bariatric surgery, having a physical and many, typically, many physical comorbidities that are coming along with it are why we would be performing the surgery. What are the steps in the psychological evaluation that allow you to recommend to the surgeons that this child, this family are in need of the procedure and you feel that they would benefit from it? It's interesting. When we developed our program at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, we went straight to the literature to understand from an adult perspective what would be a rule out from a psychological perspective and what would be a good candidate. And the literature doesn't point us in many significant directions other than to make sure that the person is not at risk in any way such that there are um, their depressive symptomatology may include suicidality. Well, that would be a reason why we would delay surgery and get them help. Or if they had an active substance abuse problem, which is less typical in an adolescent than you'd find in an adult just because it's more prevalent in adults. But nonetheless, if there's a significant substance abuse problem, we would be referring them out to get help with that. Interesting that just being depressed or just having binge eating disorder wouldn't rule someone out from having surgery. When you look to the adult literature, just an interesting finding that for some adults, being more depressed prior to surgery is predictive of better outcome. So you look at the adolescent and you assess their psychopathology so you know what you're dealing with and you make appropriate referrals, but you wouldn't necessarily, because an adolescent is experiencing some level of psychopathology, rule them out of surgery. So you just want to have a better understanding of what you're dealing with as the providers and the clinical team and what referrals need to be made, but it doesn't rule someone out. What is more likely to rule someone out is a lack of knowledge of what surgery involves, the changes in eating patterns that would need to occur following surgery, 
um, and be maintained. One of the things that I think people don't necessarily understand in adolescence in particular, because they can't really think beyond, you know, next week, that, you know, surgery is a tool that will help them lose a significant amount of weight very quickly. But within the first six to eight months, their weight loss will stabilize somewhat or the rate will uh, decline in terms of the, you know, rate of weight loss. And then it's going to be about lifestyle change more than anything, which is something they haven't been successful with in the past, obviously, because they got to an extreme level of obesity. So we work with adolescents to sort of drive that message home that, you know, there's a part of this that will seem very simple for the first time in your life. You will lose weight without trying. It'll fall off. You'll be encouraged to eat more versus eat less because some kids have trouble just eating enough. Um, initially. But then, over time, you're going to be much more integrated into your social network. You're going to be out and about. You're going to feel a lot better. You're going to look a lot better. And then, once again, you're going to be in an eating environment that hasn't changed at all, even though you have. And you're going to have to start making choices, once again, that are always healthy. And they need support around that. And I think a lot of kids don't recognize that that's what's ahead of them. I think that's our, our biggest challenge um, as the providers in a clinic such as we have and, and is to, it's the long-term care of these adolescents because the short-term piece, the more medical piece, and the initial weight loss is, you know, it's more about safety and is this kid healing correctly and are they getting enough to eat? Are they taking their vitamins? And then soon it becomes sort of the same as any other person in the community who needs to eat, eat healthy and be active. Do you use any group support or hypnosis as ways of maintaining compliance with a lifestyle change? What's interesting, which is true of adolescents in pediatric populations across the board, so it's not about bariatrics, is that when you create support groups, adolescents tend not to come. So as much as we think adolescents like to talk to each other, in medical settings, support groups generally are poorly attended, and we've certainly found that to be true in our bariatric clinic. We have support groups, and we have some regular attendees, but for the most part, kids may come once or twice, and the further out they are from surgery, the less likely they are to come back for a support group. I do some stop smoking work, and what I do is they get money back at the end if they comply after a year with avoidance of cigarettes. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's what people kind of need is some real reason to motivate them. What, have you found anything that works well? No. <laughs> that's my quick but direct answer. We work very hard to try and figure out how to sort of drive our message home and to keep kids coming back. And I think what happens is the further out they get from surgery, the more their life has changed. And to a certain extent, because they're adolescents and because it's all about becoming more independent, and many of them are separating from family and going to college or moving out onto their own, you know, into their own apartments and working, you know, they're making normal developmental transitions. Um, in the same way, we feel like they're increasingly, you know, wanting to be independent of us and the clinicians because you know, they are moving on and they've been given a new leash on life and they're enjoying it. Have you found the quality of life changes dramatically? It's remarkable. 
we have, I've had a study that's been ongoing for a couple of years now, and we just now are, have some data that we're hoping to have published, and it just shows how their quality of life is so severely impaired prior to surgery, and it crosses all domains. So, you know, their school functioning and their peer relations, their physical comfort, their physical abilities. I mean, it's just profound how impaired their quality of life is. And then within the first year, it is just a marked improvement um, across the board again. They are feeling a lot better. They're depre- those who are depressed, their depressive symptoms resolve for the most part. And so this, particularly across the first year, there's just this remarkable change. And I, I had a, you know, have conversations with teens. Some of them find the changes a bit too fast, um, that life changes very quickly. People treat you differently. People who didn't treat you well suddenly do. It's just, it's a lot to handle. And so as I tell you this and that things get much better, it's a challenge. It's life-altering, and, and it's a lot for a 16-, 17-year-old to sort of take in. So, again, you're, you're mentioning, you know, is there a support group? How do you follow these kids over time? There is a need to provide social support to these teens, and the question is how to best do that. For us in Cincinnati, and because we were one of the first programs to be working with adolescents, we have kids coming from all over the country. So a teenager from Texas can't come back to our support group every other week. So how do we provide support, ongoing support, to him or her, someone from Michigan, someone from, you know, it's hard. If they were all local kids, I think it would be a different mode of treatment altogether. Have you had any child or family reject the idea of bariatric surgery? And are there any psychological clues that might lead you to predict who may say no? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, And one we haven't thought to ask yet. What we find typically happens is it's the insurance company. um, (laughs) It's always the insurance company. (laughs) That will tell a family no, um, as opposed to a family choosing not to. However, there are people who call and find out information but never pursue surgery, but we never see them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. certainly there are calls from people who decide not to. But most frequently in our program, the, the reason someone does not have surgery is the insurance denied them. What do you do for the people whose expectations are not met? It's interesting. When I think of someone whose expectations are not met, it's not that they aren't successful in losing weight, because they are. It's more that it's harder than they thought it would be. In that regard, you know, it's, it's frustration over the lifestyle change that really does have to happen. And the challenges that go with that, you know, realizing that, you know, the family didn't have the surgery, the adolescent did. So if an adolescent's in an environment that doesn't change with them um, and people are not changing their eating habits and you're living in that, that can be someone who is frustrated with the surgery, not because they're not losing weight, but just how hard it is, if that makes sense. Oh, sure. Is there a relapse rate following the bariatric surgery, or is it, you know, the surgery is so successful that they just can't stuff themselves enough to gain all the weight back? Oh, no, no. That's, people can regain the weight. If you look at the adult literature, the trends over time, there is weight stabilization, and then for some, there is weight regain. And you'll hear about people who, you know, gained all their weight back or had a second procedure, um, a, a second reduction you know, we aren't doing those procedures in Cincinnati, but we are. Uh, there's a certain percentage of 
kids who are starting to experience weight regain, and that's typically in the second year. Now, it isn't regain of all the weight. You can look at their BMI or their, you know, their weight over time and see that they're, you know, creeping back up into um, a weight range that would be of concern. So there is great concern about, in the adult population as well, about what are the mechanisms that we could be targeting um, to prevent weight regain. I do want to thank Dr. Meg Zeller, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the psychosocial aspects of bariatric surgery in childhood. I leave you with the words of Orson Welles. My doctor told me to stop having intimate dinners for four, unless there are three other people. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.